0: Good evening. Goodbye Forever, Volume 2, Chapter 1, Part 2. I could hear Dudjam Rinpoche's voice through what I'd written, even though the words came through a translator. It was merely my handwriting, but I'd written the words in Dujam Rimshay's presence, so they carried a sense of wonder. The fact that I had written the words in Dujan Rinpoche's room seemed miraculous. I had no vocabulary or grammar, however, through which I could explain that to anyone. Whenever Dujan Rinpoche gave me Dzogchen teachings, he asked me to represent them in my own language in order that they could be translated back to him in Tibetan. He wanted to check my understanding and also to give me confidence in respect of my teaching in the future. I was going to have to express Vajrayana for Western people. That would require my not merely substituting Tibetan words for English words, but conveying the meaning of the words in a way that delivered their dynamic value. How I taught had to make cogent sense in Western ears. Making sense is a bland, lacklustre expression. If or when I ever taught, I'd want it to have the cathartic immediacy, invigorating imminence and emancipating conviction which rang in my ears when Dujam Rinpoche taught. How was I ever to accomplish anything remotely like that? I knew I didn't want to employ the pietistic or academic linguistics I read. I'd made a start when explaining Vajrayana to Westerners I'd commenced expressing Vajrayana with less of that type of language in my representations of what Kyabjai Dojjum Rinpoche had taught. But what more could I achieve? I did not know. I'd be at retirement age before anything like cathartic immediacy was feasible, even if I used every holiday for solitary retreat. I'd been inspired by Chugyam Trumpa Rinpoche's books in terms of expressing Vajrayana in contemporary English, but I would not set out to emulate his personal stylistics, much as I enjoyed and was inspired by them. It was his use of contemporary vernacular and psychological terms that presented me with the key and for that alone I remain indebted to him. Kyabjai Dujyum Rinpoche had said that there was some connection between me and Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, but that might only unravel itself in the future, depending on circumstances. Kyabjai Dudjum Rinpoche had made so many life-changing declarations in such a short period of time that I felt as if it would take the rest of my life to unpack them all. Sometimes I felt as if Dudjam Rumshe might simply appear in our front room or emerge from a crowd in town. There were a few occasions when I caught fleeting impressions of him in the faces of passing people. In shops and in railway stations, as though he were keeping a spacious surveillance. Nonsense, of course, and I had no desire to spiritualise such fantasies. I'd always been given to seeing what wasn't there, according to my father, but sometimes these fantasies have proved to touch on reality. With each life circumstance, whatever is enacted, stare directly into the enactment with all the senses. My mother had recounted her paranormal experiences, particularly around her brother Berndt dying on the Russian front in World War II. She had sustained bruises in the places where the bullets had hit burnt. I never experienced anything that visceral. But sometimes, something genuine washed through me. I'd been unusually close to Dujam for a short period of time, and it had changed my life. I was most bereft baleful and bemused, but also brilliant, bodacious and beatific. Little wonder I kept seeing Dujam Rinpoche. After a day or so recovering from jet lag, my father's quote came back to me. Home is the sailor, home from the sea, and the hunter, home from the hill. This is what he said when he first saw me on the day of my arrival from India. I looked it up in his large book of English verse. Under the wide and starry sky, dig the grave and let me lie. Glad did I live and gladly die, and I laid me down with a will. This be the verse you grave for me. Here he lies where he longed to be. Home is the sailor, home from the sea, and the hunter home from the hill. Glad did I live and gladly die. Well, glad did I live, certainly. But I was not quite ready to die. Well, not as gladly. I didn't think that my father was trying to be profound. It wasn't his way. Those were simply words which could be used when someone returned from somewhere. I'd heard those words used before in that way, and that was the style in which he'd quoted them. There was no reason, however, why I shouldn't look at the meaning of the verse as it could apply to me. In a sense, I'd already died. My national health insurance number was identical. My driving licence was the same. And barring some exotic visa stamps, my passport was indistinguishable. These documents testified that someone lived on. But maybe only as Printed paper and cardboard. My mother, father and brother knew who I was, but I was uncertain. With each life circumstance, whatever is enacted, stare directly into the enactment with all the senses. I knew how to be who I had been, but it felt a little as if I were acting. Not in the sense of performing a role, it wasn't possible to forget lines or let my accent slip, but because being me seemed unreal. I concluded that it was merely the result of reverse culture shock. Yes. That could be it. The days went by, however, and I knew that i died. The old version of whoever I was was merely haunting my new life. I'd have to accept the sensation and simply live it without mawkish self-consciousness. The idea of inhabiting different versions of myself took me back to an afternoon in Bodhana, sitting with Dujjum Rinpoche and listening to his teaching on the 12 manifestations of Guru Rinpoche. I went directly to my folder of notes and read what Khyabjai Dujjum Rinpoche had said on that occasion. Times when Guru Rinpoche most important actions of life displaying, Dujjum Rinpoche explained, on the tenth days of lunar calendar falling. Then you must always be practicing. He then gave me a list of Guru Rinpoche's activities on each of the tenth days in the year. Dujjum Rinpoche then explained but, in the Ser Treng instruction, it is stated that on the tenth day in particular, I shall come to the Himalayan lands, but shall be present everywhere, riding the rays of sun and moon and the mists of rainbows, to abolish obstacles of my sons and daughters. I shall then give all empowerments you wish. This is my pledge. If you practice every 10th day, your community will enjoy happiness and well-being. Dujan Rinpoche smiled. Guru Rinpoche, this promise many times making, so completely trusting. Every 10th day, practicing. The instruction, Dujan Rinpoche laughed, this instruction like a beautiful girl dressed towards you, flaunting. So must be welcoming. Then she's stepping forward. Then you must feasts of every kind of happiness offering. Kyabje Dujjum Rinpoche often teased me about my predisposition in respect of girlfriends. This was not in any sense of it being an error but because it was part of my personality that he enjoyed. His enjoyment, however, was mysterious because it always burgeoned with a wealth of knowledge and foresight. On these occasions he would always emphasise the need to find the right consort and I would feel the seriousness of that responsibility. Thinking back to this occasion, as always, I felt it most appropriate to sit and practice the four now jaws. As soon as I sat, or no sooner than I had concluded my sitting, I was exactly where I was. Nothing felt alien after that. I simply felt fresh and refreshed. The old collection of personality traits seemed to be gone but I could do whatever the old personality could do. I could still blow blues harp. I could still play a barely adequate blues on guitar. The person I'd been had dissolved. I had vanished with the dissolution of each context in the unlikely curriculum vitae that unrolled. That had been the pattern since I was cognizant of the world. Goodbye forever was the obvious atavistic aphorism. The period of time before going to art school looked inviting. It would be a bardo and I would have to inhabit it as such. It would be an indeterminate, intermediary interregnum in which I'd have less coherent identity than I'd had in the Himalayas. In India and Nepal, I'd been clearly defined as a Nyingma practitioner, albeit an Inji. But until mid-September, I'd be wafting with the winds of alternating circumstances. Dujjomaramshe had told me that I needed to learn to live in the West as a nakpa. He explained that this did not mean that I should dress in my robes or keep myself aloof from everyday life. Quite the reverse. His advice was to live as everyone lived, or at least as art students lived. I had to be an art student. I had to experience the world as art students experienced it. Unless I could be part of the world in the West, I could never teach Western people with real conviction. I had to belong to the Western world whilst also living as a Nakba. He said that it would not be easy it would be easier to live in Nepal and India but that would never serve to establish the tradition of nakpas and nakmas in the West or to transmit the terma of aro Lingma. This was going to be a strange adventure. With each life circumstance, whatever is enacted, stare directly into the enactment with all the senses. After some weeks at home, having put on a little weight, I slotted back into the art school scene as a life model. It wasn't important to earn a great deal and so life modelling suited me. I'd earn the serious money in the summer holidays on building sites, but as long as I could I wanted to take up John Morris' generous offer and avail myself of the art school facilities. I'd be some sort of art student emeritus. It worked well. As far as the other students were concerned, I was as much of an art student as they were, apart from the fact that I was sometimes the life model. I mainly life modelled at Guildford Art School but I had some sessions in the old art school building for portraiture. The portraiture paid less but fortunately I always got more work in the posing pouch. Strangely enough women could model entirely naked but men had to wear posing pouches. Due to the presence of those under 18 years of age, I was lucky inasmuch as men were a rare commodity as life models, and so there was no lack of employment. With each life circumstance, whatever is enacted, stare directly into the enactment with all the senses. It was strange. But then life was always strange. I couldn't help but reflect that a few months previously I'd been sitting with Kyabjai Dujumrimshe and now I was sitting in a posing pouch with 20-odd people observing me. They'd walk into the room with their pencils in their hands but unlike Bob Dylan's song they saw me almost naked. But never asked, who is that man? I was simply the life model. There was nothing else to know. Life modelling was useful employment for a Nyingma Nakpa. With each life circumstance, whatever is enacted, stare directly into the enactment with all the senses. Considering this will make you happy. Be of great good cheer. Amaho.